This podcast, normally explicit, is not so today. Hi, it's Saturday. Hope you're enjoying your Saturday. Or if it's Sunday, hope you enjoyed your Sunday. Or if you're planning to listen to this next Saturday, but it's the Sunday before, I'm going to predict you're going to enjoy it. Anyway, what we always do on the Saturday show, speaking of playing with the past, is to bring you an episode from the past and an episode from this past week, or at least a slice of an episode. The first up will be on Tuesday, I was talking about this Donald Trump document reclamation project. I do believe in a couple of years we will look back to the chaos and the pronouncements of chaos and threats of violence of this weekend wonder, really? I mean, maybe we'll say, and that's where it all started. But I think we'll probably say, oh yeah, that thing. I'm going to slot that between Chinese tariffs and Sharpie on an Alabama hurricane map. On Tuesday, I was talking and playing tape from MSNBC and CNN and the OAN network of people going as far as to say, this will be the dispositive development in the 2024 election. Maybe I didn't say dispositive. Maybe I said dispositive. You see the difference? And then in our interview from the past, our blast from the past, it's a 2020 interview with Alex Coe, who is an historian, a popular historian, a historian of popular figures. George Washington was such a figure. But she went back and looked at the man who was valorized in his time and beyond and uh, found some flaws, which I think is fine. You know, we are a republic. We're not a monarchy. So the title of that book is Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington. It's very cheeky. And he was very thigh-like to evoke two parts of the hindquarters. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. If you achieve greatness on a college football field, you might be given the Heisman Award. Well, there is a new award. It is the Thigh Man of History Award. The Thigh Man of History are those who looked at George Washington thighs and said, my, what specimens they are. What mighty hammocks. This is an observation of Alexis Coe. She is the author of You Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington, a biography that in form and substance tries to do something that uh, no biography of George Washington has ever done. And I would say she does it successfully. Hello, Alexis. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Why? Why are all these male historians so damn obsessed with the man's thighs? At first, I thought that it was hero worship. I thought maybe they were into him. Mm -hmm. I looked at different portraits of founding fathers and their thighs, and they're nice, but Hamilton's are also very nice. Mm -hmm. And it's inappropriate anyway for us to be commenting on his thighs any more than we would a woman's. We have to, you know, be uniform when we're applying these standards. It has to do with his virility. It has to do with his masculinity. But the thing that always struck me as odd when I would approach Washington biographies, and I always read presidential biographies, at least three in conversation, so you can really emerge with a strong sense of the person, is that they 
worshipped him mm-hmm. to the point where they just couldn't see anything else. It's not just the thighs. They start out their books in the exact same manner. They say, he's too marbled to be real. I'm going to humbly endeavor to break him free. And then they proceed in the exact same manner. So if you've got a thousand page book, if that's your deal, and you're mm-hmm. spending 20 pages talking about his thighs and how manly he was, and even though he didn't have children, it was totally okay because he was definitely masculine. There's something weird going on. As much as historians obsess with the thighs, from everything that I read, his stature, meaning his actual height, was really important then. And same guy, six inches shorter, wouldn't have been the father of the country, I get the impression. Absolutely. If you'll notice Madison, Adams, all the other guys who were of slightly, oh, we guys. Yeah, yep. slightly smaller stature are often described as being annoying. Yeah. And I do think it's really significant that Washington was 6'2". He had the great... Jefferson was tall also. Yeah. And he doesn't get... And, and Adams was the annoying one and Jefferson was a lot of things, but he wasn't called annoying. Washington is an athlete. And I don't know why we can't just say he was graceful. He was yeah. like an athlete. The thing that Washington clearly had, the quality that all these historians spend, you know, hundreds of pages trying to describe is the thing we can't describe now of a person you meet at a party, which is that they're charismatic. He was charismatic. It's very hard to capture. At one point, I just say that. We have to take the word. Without seeming to show the effort. He wasn't seen as trying too hard. Obviously, you chronicle all the ways that he strategized how to win friends and influence people. But yeah, he let the action come to him and he could because he towered over most people of his day. And he was also incredibly controlled, not just because he liked to keep his cards close to his chest. He was self-conscious. He worried that his education next to all these guys who went to Harvard and the College of William and Mary, um, all these people who were known as brilliant (laughs) diplomats that he, you know, who had to drop out of school when he was still an adolescent, that he was deficient and his dentures were super uncomfortable and he didn't like showing them and he couldn't, you know, open his mouth to a certain degree. So it all makes sense. He's not this like superhuman, amazing specimen who we describe in terms and ways you would find in a romance novel. His jaw was rippling and, you know, it's 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 a lot. <laughs> so what did you find about him that lived up or maybe even surpassed either the myth or your expectations? I don't know if it's the myth, but, you know, when you go to Mount Vernon, it is a beautiful beautiful estate. It has a lot of different farms. It is also a forced labor camp. And you see a lot of the things that he tried to do. And and what I really understood is instead of just telling me he was a businessman, I really understood how important that was to him to succeed in that sense, as a capitalist, and also how much he enjoyed it. You know, he spent a lot of time thinking about different ways he could work the enslaved community harder and more efficiently. And so I think for me, to hear that he's so happy at Mount Vernon and it's so romantic and genteel and all of these things doesn't do it. But to actually see what it was about Mount Vernon, then I get it. Yeah. And I think that... Whatever leadership is, and maybe there are parts of leadership that are unfair and based on subjectivity, he had it. The way the other founding fathers talk about him was different from how they talked about any of the rest of them. Like, he wasn't a Superman, and many of them, you know, tried to politicize around him. But it always seems to me, even from your book and everything else I read, that there was this, they set him apart. They set him apart. They had an incredible amount of respect for him. They envied the way other people talked about him. And they also did find him to be 
slippery. At one point, Jefferson says he's going to exit the presidency and he's going to get away with everything and not take the blame for anything. And we're going to get it just like usual. It's so bitter. And I think that that is absolutely true, that they respected him. They feared him a little bit. And they also felt like he got to live by different standards. And that's still true. If you think about how modern audiences feel about the founding fathers, there are so many emotions when it comes to Jefferson. He's such, you know, there's the hypocrisy. We want him to be the great things that he said and that he wrote. With Adams, you can joke about him. He's sort of fun with, you know, all these different people. With Washington, people are like, Myths. Yes. Why do you think that he has not been able to be portrayed as a great dramatic figure? Uh, I mean that in movies. In I guess he's pretty good in the in the musical Hamilton. Mm-hmm. But he seems. It seems that I don't know if it's that he doesn't have that you know fatal flaw. Although you portray that he does. But so far, he has defied characterization in fictionalized or semi-fictionalized form. As much as he is on the dollar bill and our first founding father, there's no great portrayal of him that resounds, yes, across the ages like there have been of Lincoln. Lincoln, we have photos of, Mm -hmm. and I think that's really significant. A presidential scholar at the Adams Papers at the Massachusetts Historical Society once had the gall to call Washington vanilla to my face. And I think that that is true. That's how people see him. I don't think it's true when it comes to Washington. He was constantly plotting and scheming and being pretty awful and, you know, exacting. And then he would get really excited about odd things like mules and he would name his dog Sweet Lips. You know, he is a fully formed person to me. And odd to you and I, Alexis. I mean, back then, mules were really important. Well, they were hard to get too. <laughs> they were illegal to export from Spain. And that's the only time I really see him trying to be like, use his influencer, if you <laughs> yeah, will. He yeah. he really wants one for free. Well, isn't Mount Vernon, I mean, isn't the placement of Washington, D.C. like a little bit lining his pocket? I mean, didn't they speculate on where that should go and they made some money on that? It was the Great Compromise. Yeah. Hamilton wanted his bank and the Southerners, of which we have to remember Washington was, yeah. wanted a Southern location. And of course, he was thrilled that it was 15 miles from Mount Vernon. The same way he was thrilled that Philadelphia, the second location of the presidential house, was close enough to Mount Vernon to rotate his enslaved people out every six months lest they be free, which was the rule of the city. So I've interviewed Chernow, and he said if he didn't like one of his subjects, just given how far and how deep he goes, it would be an unenjoyable experience for him. So he either comes to like or starts and chooses a subject that he's interested in and thinks he will like. Well, how about you and liking your subject? And how did being with George Washington for so long play out in your life? I believe that Chernow likes Washington, I think. But also Rockefeller and also yes. Hamilton. And he, yes, you know. but the problem with being as obvious about your admiration and your affection for your subject is that it creates a bias. Mm-hmm. And you want to see the best in them. This biography has been called irreverent a little bit. Yours, yes. Mine. Yes. And my question is, why are we accepting of reverence? It skews... The perception. So, so with someone like Chernow, the problem with him liking Washington is he can't see faults very easily. So he can't say, hey, you were sort of negligent in this position or, you know, why didn't you admit that sooner? Or let's say there's a rumor that, you know, his mother sent a letter of complaint to the Virginia Assembly. He doesn't check it out. He just says it as fact. He uh-huh. says she sent this letter. She didn't. 
I wouldn't say that I love him or I hate him or I feel any of those things to me because we have a professional relationship. So I'm not going to comment on his thighs <laughs> and I'm not going to say that I like him. I will say that he is a fully formed person to me. And so he has a lot of things I really dislike and find very disappointing and a lot of things that I am in absolute awe about. Would America be America if it weren't for George Washington? No, it really wouldn't. There was no other man for the job. That's true. And we can play this game. We can say, you know, what if Washington had emancipated his slaves? The things that we project onto Jefferson. I've talked to Annette Gordon-Reed about this, and she said, you know, Jefferson, if he had done all the things that we want him to, we wouldn't know his name. I'm not sure if that's true with Washington. I don't know if we would have been a country if he had emancipated his slaves during his lifetime, but I think a lot of things would have happened a little bit sooner. All the books end on Washington emancipating his slaves, and I go a little bit farther than that, and I talk about the Civil War, when his vault had been built and this was his dream to have this verdant spot. What's interesting is that both sides, the Confederacy and the Union, they both come and they they pay homage, they pay their respects, and they engrave their initials into the stones because they both felt like he belonged to them. They both, for political reasons, had to lay claim to him. Yes. The Southerner saying Washington saw himself as a Virginian first. Yes. And they cherry-picked what they thought was significant and true about him, and they were both right. And I think that is really important when you think about Washington and our founding and our country. Well, a great leader can also represent the dreams and aspirations of all people, could be a little bit of a blank slate. Yes, and we can't expect these people to be perfect. I have never known a perfect president in my lifetime. And And you mentioned Chester A. Arthur, which is weird. Yeah, (laughs) my goodness. I mean, just up and down with that man. You know, it starts out so promising, and then it's awful, and then it's good again, and who knows? I love Chester A. Arthur. What a redemption story. I know, (laughs) and America loves a redemption story. that's why we love Chester A. Arthur. Yeah. (laughs) Mm, Don't tempt me. (laughs) Our only Vermont president, I believe. It's true. Some people spent a lot of time in Vermont, but they and they built houses, but they didn't actually live there. I think that this idea that we expect these men to be perfect, especially when it's a golden child, let's say like Kennedy or or someone who does the unthinkable like Washington, um, we're projecting our hopes and our dreams for ourselves onto them. The country has always been a mess. The leaders have always been incredibly flawed people. And that's okay. We've survived. It doesn't ensure that we will. What we should take from this is that people have fought very hard for what they believe in. Mm-hmm. They're not people who would naturally do this. You know, Washington was a reluctant revolutionary. He only did that when he had to. And then he changed course dramatically when he was president. You Never Forget Your First is the name of the book. It is a biography of George Washington, a biography the likes of which you haven't read before. Many charts and graphs and witticisms. And let us take the word irreverent in its least pejorative form and say that it applies to that. It applies to the book as well. It's an excellent read. Alexis co-wrote it. Thank you, Alexis. Thank you. And now the spiel. Though he says the words law and order more than Jerry Orbach, temperamentally, Donald Trump is an anarchist. We knew this. In terms of turning his lead balloons of policy into gold, he wasn't much of an alchemist. And today, we're finding out he comes up short as an archivist. Mar-a-Lago was raided by federal officials looking for what the Washington Post and others described as classified and unclassified material that did not belong to him. 
But we're not really sure what they were looking for, and we're not really sure what it means. However, in this media environment, the absence of information is not a moment to be mum. It's an opportunity to shine with extreme conclusions and completely uninformed speculation. In Politico, a source, an off-the-record source, identified as a legal expert, but not by name, perhaps with a minor in crackenology, was quoted as saying, if they raided his home just to find classified documents he took from the White House, he will be re-elected president in 2024. Hands down, it will prove to be the greatest law enforcement mistake in history. I don't know, the internment of the Japanese was pretty bad, Attica prison, uprising. Anyway, it's good to see that an anonymous person, possibly John Eastman or Ginny Thomas, who knows, says a law enforcement effort only merely to stop a private citizen from possessing classified materials will be so appalling that Republicans won't vote for Ron DeSantis, who, by the way, didn't actually possess classified materials unlawfully. And the result will be Donald Trump will be swept into office by Americans voting their interests. Their interest defined as former presidents must, under all circumstance, be allowed to keep whatever documents they like. Suburban moms in Bucks County, they're really into that. Andrew Yang, who has started a third party, agrees with that general sentiment, quoting Anonymous in a tweet. That's good. There's a third party to represent the interest of unheard Americans who really want former presidents to hold on to bombing maps or list of undercover agents overseas or whatever they damn well please. If you think it's the anonymity of the prediction irking me, we can find people who put their names to it. Farrah Griffin, who is a former Trump staffer, she's been given a gig on CNN because she's one of the good ones, like Cassidy Hutchinson, brave enough to speak up. Here's what CNN's contract bought them. This, I'm hoping, goes beyond simply not complying with some archiving laws or DOJ just handed Donald Trump the Republican nominee and potentially the presidency. See, that's how it works. You cut out the middleman or the 50 million middlemen and women who might vote in a Republican primary. It's good for networks, I say, by the way, to include perspectives of conservatives, even former Trumpites who are also not insurrectionists. So fine that she has a contract. The downside is the quality of the perspective is what you just heard there. I think these experts generally overvalue how much your average American is outraged that law enforcement is using its power to treat former presidents like citizens. The voting block for a former president should never have to follow laws is, well, all of them are currently hacking into the side panels of Dominion voting machines outside of Grand Rapids. Some of this block was given voice by Laura Ingram on Fox last night. Well, I think this is one of the lowest points for our republic, certainly in my lifetime. I, I, I mean, maybe during the Nixon era when the things were all coming apart then, but this is about as low as it could get, cer certainly since then. The lowest, Pearl Harbor, Vietnam, Dred Scott, not a glorious moment. But then she adds the Nixon citation. I assume she acknowledges that Nixon was corrupt. So the critique is, let's say, a little muddled. She just knows that these are sad moments of the presidency, but then she doesn't get into the four who were assassinated. Huh. It's just generally reflecting a tisk tisking about law enforcement, law enforcement that would actually seek to enforce such unimportant laws as violated by such an important man. If that, by the way, the violation of records laws is even what's happening. We don't know. We don't know what to make of these raids and this warrant. And MSNBC has at least copped to that. We don't know, they said. But then they said, without saying, 
but we know it's big. Here's Rachel Maddow introducing a Washington Post reporter who did know, and I'm including in this clip what we were meant to interpret as a portentous pause. In broad historical terms, today will always be the day that you and I and all of us learned that a former president of the United States had been raided by the FBI. Joining us now is Jackie Alamany. It is historical in that it never happened. I'm not arguing that it did, but his two impeachments were historical. The attack on the Capitol was historical. Not attending his successor's inauguration was historical. You know, first time since Andrew Johnson. He just does historical after historical after historical. After so much historical, it becomes a little, I don't know, common routine. MSNBC had their in-house historian, Michael Beschloss, on for insight. Don't think that this is something that has ever happened before in American history. Let's pause for a second to look at how weird and horrible this is. You know, the FBI is going in to search the house of an ex-president because there's serious suspicion that a federal crime was committed here. Yes, there's nothing wrong with that. There really isn't. There's nothing wrong with having a smart guy like Beschloss on to give information. And he did about Nixon and Bibi Rebozo. Can't be too much Bibi Rebozo content for my tastes. Also, the Presidential Records Act. You know, Beschloss is a trustee of the National Archives Foundation, so he's got a dog-eared copy of text in this fight. It's just the whole idea of rendering the present through the lens of history. It always naturally, I think by design, imbues it with an importance it doesn't necessarily have. Again, we don't know what the violations are even alleged to have been. It is unprecedented or historical to investigate a former president for crimes that he may have committed in office. That's what's going on right now, we think. Some sort of investigation, who knows how formal it is, but we are all fairly sure that Merritt Garland is at least looking into possible crimes. This might be parallel to the January 6th investigation. It might not be. But if you're going to investigate crimes, of course, the methods of that investigation are going to be unprecedented. When you have on a historian, you are saying it's historical. But we're talking about the book of Trump and all the crazy chapters therein. Will some of these pages be notable or memorable? We don't even know what the pages are or if those pages will be archived or flushed down the toilet like so much of the other refuse generated by our former president. Corey Wara produced the show. Ian Scotto worked with us this week. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist, and we will speak again on Monday.